Hey, it's Darren from Divorced and Done. You normally don't hear my voice at the start of the episodes. You normally hear Rob's. Rob is not with me this week. Our schedules have been hectic and crazy, but I wanted to jump on and drop an episode for you this week. What we're gonna do is a case summary about a case where the court had to interpret a separation agreement. We get lots of questions from you guys about separation agreements and when a court will step in and interpret it and what happens in these sort of cases. So I have a recent case for you. I will go through it as best I can to give you a recent example of what a court will do in these sort of cases. So as always, everything we talk about here is for your information. It's not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. All said, come with me, let's do a case summary, and let's have some fun. This case comes from the Court of Appeal of Saskatchewan. The citation's 2022 SKCA, meaning Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, Number 90, 2022 SKCA 90. The case involves a separated couple with one child. They were together for 15 years, married in 2000, separating in 2015. In 2016, less than a year after they had separated, they signed a very comprehensive separation agreement. And so, As we talk about on this podcast, the goal of a separation agreement is to make agreement on all the big divorced and done steps. So step one, you're going to live separate and apart. Step two, parenting time and parental decision-making of any minor children. Step three, child support. Step four, division of property and debt. Step five, spousal support or waiver of spousal support. And lastly, getting that divorce order at step six. Those are the big themes that need to be addressed in any comprehensive separation agreement. And as we know, the only ways to get divorced are living separate and apart for a year and coming to an agreement with your ex-spouse on all of those things through a separation agreement. If you can't do that, then you need a judge to decide those issues for you. And despite the thousands of divorce filings in court every year in Canada, 99%, and I'm generalizing, I don't have the exact stat, but 99% of folks ultimately land on a separation agreement. Only very few of them actually run to trial. Various factors for that include, of course, people run out of steam, energy, or money to run these to litigation. So the folks in this case said, less than a year after they separate, Let's do a separation agreement. And if we step back, you don't have to wait the full year of separation to address all the divorced and done steps. You can do them in a separation agreement day one of your separation if you wanted. You just won't get that divorce order till you live separate and apart for a year. So uh, that's what these folks did. And the essence of the separation agreement between this separating couple was that the dad, husband would give up primary parenting of the party's child. Mom would have primary care of the child. They would share parental decision-making, but mom would have primary care. Dad worked for uh, a rail 
line and he was away from work or away for work for long stretches of time. So he couldn't be the primary parent. But the parties agreed that dad would not pay any child support to mom. And this is kind of a unique thing. We don't often see this. We often see in uh, separations where there's minor children, one parent receiving monthly child support or periodic child support. It can be paid in increments through a month on the first or 15th day. We often see that. But in this case, the parties agreed that dad would not pay any child support to mom. And in exchange for that, dad gave up a $57,000 equalization payment that he should have received for giving mom sole title to the family home that they owned together. And the exact figure is $56,772. So dad gave that money up. He should have received that because mom received the lion's share of equity in all the family assets. And uh, if mom was to keep the house, she would have had to have paid dad that 56,000 and change. But she didn't do that, and in exchange, Dad said, uh, I will not pay any child support to you. So everyone was happy with that. They signed the agreement. Um, the agreement specifically said that the, it says, quote, the parties agree that child support payments from the husband to the wife shall be set off by the value of the equalization payment referenced, the 56000 and change. The wife further acknowledges at this time that her income is sufficient to support herself and the child to an acceptable standard of living. The parties both had lawyers and the lawyers clearly did a good job drafting this agreement. They didn't download this from the internet. They didn't go to Staples. Uh, Rob on this podcast has been very clear. No one should go to Staples to buy their draft form separation agreement. We are clearly precluding any possible future sponsorship with Staples, but nonetheless, Rob is steadfast. Don't go buy your separation agreement at Staples. Uh, and, I, and I agree with that. These folks had lawyers do their separation agreement. It was well-drafted, and the um, parties were happy with it. Four years go by. Uh, between that time, they got their divorce order. And four years later, mom brought an application in court. And she sought an order for the commencement of child support payments. And you're probably sitting here thinking, why, why would she do that? And it's because she interpreted what we previously read about the separation agreement. So that provision being that the parties agree the child support payments from the husband to wife shall be set off by the equalization payment referenced here that the husband was giving up. And the wife further acknowledges at this time that her income is sufficient to support herself and the child to an acceptable standard of living. Um, the agreement also says other things about this equalization payment. I won't get into all of them at this point. Um, the agreement, the other provision I should reference here uh, before going any further is that it said, it is understood and agreed to by the parties that in the event the wife would seek child support at any point in the future, the full amount of the equalization payment, the 56000 and change, shall be credited to the husband for child support paid, regardless of when such application is brought by the wife. Um, so the wife then, four years later, brings an application for child support 
And her main argument was that the contract contemplated that she could at some point bring a child support application for the commencement of child support, and that in essence, the $56,000 and change equalization payment that the husband gave up was a credit towards child support that he should have been paying for those four years, but because he gave up that equalization payment that he should have received, everything's hunky-dory for the four years. She just now wants to commence that child support payment. And so off to court they go, goes to the lower court, and um, the lower court, the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench, ruled in favor of the husband. The court said that the interpretation of the agreement, broadly speaking, is such that this was a one-time deal. Um, the agreement did contemplate mom may bring an application for spousal support in the future, but not that the money, the equalization payment, would be a direct set-off for it. Uh, rather, it just allowed her in the future, if she wanted to bring a child support application, the court would consider that equalization payment as a set-off. It didn't say that it was, in fact, a set-off. Mom was not happy with the lower court's ruling, and she goes to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, and that's the case we're now considering. So the Court of Appeal says in its analysis, well, how should we interpret this agreement? That's squarely the question that was before the Court of Appeal. And just so everyone knows, the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan, much like other provinces in Canada, and I'm assuming other states throughout the U.S., it's a multi-panel, multi-member panel of the court that would sit and hear argument. So at the lower court, mom would have argued before a single judge through her lawyer in, about her position on this separation agreement. When she's not happy with that, she has a right to appeal to the Court of Appeal. When you go to a Court of Appeal, you don't re-argue the evidence before the court. You're just arguing that, hey, the lower court made some error in law or misinterpreted some facts, so we need you, Court of Appeal, to do something about that. And it's often the case that things that are appealed are dismissed by the Court of Appeal. From a policy perspective, courts of appeal want to enforce orders made by lower courts because if they readily interfere with the decisions of lower courts, then it sort of erodes the purpose of the lower court. People would just be incentivized to appeal to the Court of Appeal, and uh, we don't want that. We don't want to relitigate issues over and over again. We want to have sort of from a broad policy perspective the notion that, look, courts at the lower court level make binding decisions, and only in exceptional cases would a Court of Appeal set aside some or all of the orders made by the lower court. It's a three-member panel of the court that would have heard this argument, and the three-member panel would have, uh, and did in this case, render the written decision. All cases argued at courts of appeal, as far as I'm aware, in most provinces, BC, where I practice, this is the case, they render written decisions so that there's a public record of it. Sometimes it's the case that when you have a multi-member panel of a court of appeal, one or more, one, one or two of the members of the panel may say, this is how I interpret the case. And then you may get a dissenting member of the court writing a different opinion. But if a majority of the Court of Appeal rules uh, one way or another, then you have a binding decision from the Court of Appeal. Hopefully that makes sense. Anyway, back to the case. Mom goes to the Court of Appeal, says, look, we need you, Court of Appeal, to interpret this agreement. Court of Appeal says, gladly, let's interpret the agreement. 
And what they do here is they say, well, the mom's argument, the wife's argument that the agreement should be read as meaning the $56,000 and change equalization payment waived by the husband was just in effect a prepayment for child support. A credit for future child support is untenable. Um, the court says that in particular paragraphs 12 to 16, it's where it does it, the bulk of its analysis on this case. The court says it's not a tenable interpretation of the agreement for the obvious reason that the wife and husband entered into it on the express understanding that no child support was payable at that time because, quote, the wife had sufficient income to support herself and the child. The court goes on to do some more interpretation of the agreement, but basically the core of this is the crux of the agreement was this was a one-time deal. This wasn't a set-off or prepayment of child support. So um, the court does go on here. It also looks at uh, a section of the Divorce Act, Section 15.1, subsection 5. Anyone uh, listening curious about this section, it does provide that a court may award an amount different from the amount that would be determined under the child support guideline tables. If you're listening to this, you probably know the tables or what they mean in essence. A court can stray from the table amount under section 15.1, subsection 5, if the court is satisfied that special provisions in an order, judgment, or written agreement respecting the financial obligations of the spouses or a division of their property directly or indirectly benefit a child or that special provisions have otherwise been made for the benefit of the child and that the application of the applicable guidelines would result in an amount of child support that's inequitable given those provisions. In English, what that means is spouses can make deals on, on child support. Excuse me, They can make deals where one spouse gives up a lot of equity in the family assets to the other in exchange for a reduced amount of child support, or in this case, no child support. The statute, the Divorce Act, provides for that. And the court in this case says that there are special provisions it's because the section says if special provisions are set out in an agreement and it wouldn't be basically um, inequitable to not order the table amount of child support but follow the agreement, we should follow the agreement. And that's what the court does here. It says, look, not only is mom's interpretation of the separation agreement wrong, but section 15.1 subsection 5 of the Divorce Act allows a court to stray from the guidelines, and it's totally appropriate to stray from the guidelines in this case. So um, all told, this is a lesson in a few things. Number one is get a separation agreement that is clear and, sh and can be interpreted by a court in a clear way. You don't want to have ambiguity in your agreement. You don't want to rush the agreement such that it has ambiguities in it about these big things. And in this case, uh, dad was successful at both levels of the court, partly because mom's interpretation of the agreement was just untenable and unreasonable. He got costs at both levels of the court. I don't know in what amount, but he would have got some of his costs back for having to litigate all of this. Um, but more broadly, get a clear separation agreement. Don't do that Staples contract that Rob talks about so uh, passionately. Don't do that. Get a properly drafted separation agreement. The other lesson here is 
it is possible to not have to pay the table amount of child support, but you have to give up something else if you are the one paying child support. In this case, dad gave up an equalization payment that he otherwise would have received of 56,000 and change. He gave that up and in exchange didn't have to pay the, the table amount of child support. It's possible under section 15.1 subsection five of the Divorce Act. Hopefully that's clear. Check out the case. You can always go to Canlee, C-A-N-L-I-I.org and type in these cases. You can go read them yourself. They are a thrill to read front to back. You will be riveted reading this case if you want to go do it or read any other case for that matter. We do a really good job in Canada using our Canlee resource to provide freely accessible legal information and written decisions free. You don't need a subscription. You can go to the website and download all the cases and read them. Thank you for listening this week. And Rob and I will be back soon to do more of our fun banter, answer more of your questions. Keep sending them to us as always. Speakpipe.com slash divorced and done, A-N-D done. If you send us a speak pipe, you get priority, you get to the top of the list, we will address your question ASAP-ish. Or you can always email us your questions, lawyerstalkingaboutdivorce at gmail.com. That's lawyerstalkingaboutdivorce at gmail.com. Your questions power the podcast. Your engagement powers our podcast. We have thousands of dedicated listeners that come to us every month. It means the world to us. The last thing I'm going to ask you to do is if you haven't done it already, go leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do leave us a review by the end of September 2022, you'll be entered to win a t-shirt from Divorced and Done. We have a new logo that we have on our podcast. You can look at that. It's fun. It's our smiling faces and a cool neon um, text on it. We'll do a a t-shirt draw at the end of the month. We look forward to being with you again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.